If you would, please turn with me to the Old Testament, to the book of Daniel, to the book of Daniel. Uh, this is not a joke. Um, this is not, I know we're in the book of James, and we will get there. Um, and so if you are a gold star student, you can hold both places. But we're going to be in the book of Daniel to kind of kick us off this morning. As we continue on in our series, Roots, we've been looking at how we grow in different aspects of our life. How do we grow in avoiding temptation? How do we grow in our response to trials? We've talked about um, how do we grow in taming the tongue. Um, and today we're going to be talking about how we grow in humility. One of the best and funnest topics to preach on in church is the opposite of pridefulness. And so uh, I want us to look today in Daniel before we go uh, to the book of James. You know, one of the, one of the more unusual stories in Scripture uh, is that of, of King Nebuchadnezzar uh, in the Old Testament. We read about him here in the book of Daniel. And in chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar, actually, let's do this. How many of you have been in church any length of time and you know who Nebuchadnezzar is in the Old Testament? Okay, so a good portion of you, that, that helps me out this morning. So I'm going to do what I can to kind of paint a picture for those who may not be familiar with this, with this Bible character. So Nebuchadnezzar uh, was a pagan king in the time uh, of um, Daniel being a child, uh, or really a teenager, and he, he's overtaken much of the known world at that time. And in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about a tree that's in the very center of the earth. And it was large and strong. And that tree was reaching to the sky. And scripture tells us that the tree's foliage in the dream was beautiful and its fruit was abundant. Now the passage goes on to say, and if you're there with me in Daniel chapter 4, I want you to look at verse number 12. He says in verse number 12, its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and it was food for all. And the beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all the flesh was fed from it. Stop right there. This sounds like a beautiful dream as we're just beginning to read portions of it. But then that dream turns into a nightmare as we begin to continue on because an angelic messenger descends from heaven. And this is what he says in verse 14. He says, He proclaimed aloud and said, Thus chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit, and let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its root in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. And the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the Holy One to the end, that the living may know, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. I want us to just stop right there. This scripture says that Nebuchadnezzar tells his dream to the Jewish exile by the name of Daniel. And it's fascinating to listen to the way that Daniel responds when he hears the dream. So look now at verse number 19. And then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while and he, his thoughts alarmed him. 
And the king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Belshazzar answered and said, my lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Now Daniel was sincere here in his belief and he went on and explains this dream to the king. And his explanation was really about how God was going to come after Nebuchadnezzar for being one who would not follow truth. Now, Look at what he says in this council. Look at verse Look at verse 26. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you for the time that you know that heaven rules. And therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Now it's amazing to me that in Daniel's position as a teenager, uh, he had the courage to speak to the king in a very direct fashion about what the king was doing. He was living in a sinful way and it, it begins to, to show instructive nature, not just to the king for not listening, but to the believer as well. Look at verse 29. In verse 29, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built with my mighty, royal, uh, my mighty power as a royal resident and for the glory of your majesty? And while the words are still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice over heaven. And what happens next is immediately this word comes concerning Nebuchadnezzar, and it was fulfilled. And the scripture tells us that Nebuchadnezzar was driven away from mankind, and he began to eat grass like cattle. And his body was drenched in the dew of heaven, and his hair had grown like eagle's feathers, and his nails looked like the wings of birds. Church, after a period of time, we have... We have what has to be one of the most amazing speeches from the mouth of a pagan king anywhere that we find in Scripture. And it's given in the first person. Now in verse 34, you see this reaction by Nebuchadnezzar who has realized that he has just been placed in humiliation because of his pridefulness. And Nebuchadnezzar comes out and he says, but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raise my eyes towards heaven. And he said, my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures forever from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will, and the host of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hands and say, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor was restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. And so I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. But listen to this. As he closes out this chapter, he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, I praise, I exalt, I honor the king of heaven. For all of his works are true and his ways are just. But don't miss this, church. He says, and he, speaking of God, is able to humble those who walk in pride. Who walk in pride. 
Now let me ask you a question this morning. Let me ask you a question. Do you agree with Nebuchadnezzar's assessment and his ending statement here in this chapter? Do you agree that God is able to humble those who walk in pride? It's a marvelous, a marvelous thing pride is. Oftentimes, we, uh, we want to come from the perspective of pride. Me? I don't have any pridefulness in me. I was telling the, the prayer team this morning that a couple of years ago, I had the, the ability to uh, be gifted a book. And, and you guys know that I'm an avid reader. I love to read. Um, and I read a marvelous book called From Pride to Humility by Stuart Scott. And he said that pride is the epidemic vice. It is everywhere and it manifests itself in every way. As much as we may hate to admit it, every single person has pride, each and every one of us. He goes on to say in the second page of this book, the question is not do I have pride, but where is my pride and how much of it do I have? It struck me so much that I began to search out every portion of scripture uh, that deals with the pridefulness of human beings here in this earth. And two verses that I will never ever forget, Proverbs eleven two: when pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with humble comes wisdom. But with the humble comes wisdom. I will never forget that verse. It spoke to me in a moment of my life when I needed God to knock me down a few notches. But then I will never forget the words of James. Humble yourselves, therefore, in the presence of God, and he will exalt you. He will exalt you. A portion of scripture that we looked at last week. Now, if we would be honest this morning, many of us would say that pridefulness is a daily struggle in our lives. Amen, church? Which is where the gospel enters the conversation of our lives and our Savior stands ready to help us grow in an all-important area where we must never ever forget Jesus' words in the book of Matthew where he said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you, upon you. He says, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Why? He says, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Church, if you have had a definite time in your life where you admitted your sins and you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that means that you and I are united with him. That means that he is in you and you are in him. And what does that mean for us this morning? It means that we have the embodiment of humility living inside each and every one of us. And we don't, we don't use the power that's been given to us to walk in that humility. And so this morning, Questions begin to arise. What are the specific aspects of pride that we must address if we are going to be rooted in humility this morning? And thankfully, thankfully, the Bible answers those questions and gives us several specifics that we must follow, but also perhaps some surprising ways. So now, turn with me over to the book of James, and I want to read the last part of James chapter 4 to us this morning. We're going to start in verse number 11. 
He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the word, but a, uh, of the law, but a judge. And there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But you, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. In verse 17, so whosoever knows what uh, knows the right thing to do and fails to do it. For him, it is sin. Now that's where we're going to end here in chapter number four. And with the time that we have remaining, I want us to look at three characteristics that we need to avoid to be rooted in humility. Three characteristics that we need to avoid to be rooted in humility. The first thing is going to hit the screens for you. We must avoid being pharisaical. We must avoid being pharisaical. Back in chapter 3, James gave us an extended discussion about our tongues. And I think most of us would have said that it was very convicting. But James anticipated the responses of the Christians when he said no one can tame the tongue. Meaning that every single human struggles there. And now he's beginning to focus on a particular portion of speech. A portion of speech, and that is one who slanders, or a slanderous tongue. Look back at verse number 11. He says, do not speak against one another, brothers. He's talking about Christians here. Do not speak against one another. You know, it's amazing to me how often in Scripture the subject of slander comes up. It's amazing. If you really... Um, are, are into studying scripture or wanting to know what maybe you could do over the course of the next week, study out the concordance of your Bible and look at every single verse that talks about being slanderer or slanderous. It will surprise you how many are there. As I was studying this week, Leviticus nineteen sixteen came to me that says, you shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. He was talking to the Israelites. He was talking to the followers of Christ. Don't be a slanderer. And then Solomon, the wisest man outside of Christ in the Bible, says that he who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with the one who is a gossip. Now, just like we do on many occasions, many, many occasions, when we study God's word, we must always have a balance with scripture to scripture. Not scripture to my own thinking, but scripture to scripture. Now this here, specifically in James, is focusing on occasions when someone is lying about another person. They're speaking ill of another person or, or speaking to people who aren't a part of the problem or aren't a part of the solution. If we think back in scripture, it's the exact same way in which Satan slandered the character of God in the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis. Incidentally, church, the word devil means slanderer. The word devil means slanderer, church. And that's why James is focusing on this very thing here in his book. You know, there are plenty of times in the Bible where the Bible, uh, where a person's words and, and actions have to be called out publicly. 
there, there is a, a, a pastor and an author and a theologian explained, explained this portion of scripture in this way. He said, the biblical injunctions against slander do not, as in many churches today erroneously believe, prohibit rebuking those who persist in unrepentant sin. On the contrary, such public exposure of sin is commanded in Scripture. And James's words do not speak against one another, and they do not forbid exposing sin with righteous intent. He says, expose those things of lying and malicious intent. Expose those things. You know, it's amazing to me that a book written to Christians who are being scattered all around the world, and you find very little about the evil of those people who are causing them to scatter. You find very little in the book of James about the people who are mistreating Christians. This book was about Christians mistreating and mishandling the word of God against other Christians. About people in the church. And this book here was given to us uh, to help us grow in wisdom. And it's all about facing and addressing sinful tendencies that all of this pressure might reveal within us. That's what we've learned, right, church? That's what trials do. They reveal what's inside of us. That's what they do. They, this passage of Scripture should give us hope this morning because we don't have to change the behavior of those mistreating us. Our responsibility is to use the power of the gospel, the truth, of God's word to help us identify and change the weaknesses inside of us, not the weaknesses inside of somebody else. Amen, church? You know, one of our tendencies this morning might be that when the pressure is on is to look around at our brother and sister and slander them. Perhaps maybe because they have it easier than you or they're not walking through the same storm that you are or they're responding differently to the trial in their life than maybe you would in your own. And James explains in the very next phrase in verse number, uh, number 11 about the real problem. Look back. Look back at number 11. He says, do not speak against one another, brothers. He who speaks, uh, speaks against a brother or judges his brother. He's talking about the one who has a judgmental heart. Right here in chapter number 11, or verse number 11. And now we're getting somewhere because if we're not careful this morning, this type of heart inside of us can rear its ugly head in so many different kinds of ways. We begin to use criteria of things outside of the Word of God to make a negative evaluation of another person. And I remember, uh, church, we must remember the context here. This is talking about the way that we talk to another brother or sister in Christ when the pressure is on in your life. You know, I've come to realize that oftentimes in the Christian circles, we tend to shoot the people closest to us when things get bad in our own lives. Would you agree with that? We tend to shoot, and I don't mean physically shoot. We tend to shoot the people closest to us in our lives. And, and, and it's, it's sad because here in Scripture, he says, do not speak against one another. He who speaks against another is judging his brother, and he speaks against the law, and he judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law. You become a judge of it. We see here the rebellious nature of mankind. The rebellious nature of mankind. And how true is that, church? How true is it that we can be judgmental and rebellious? 
How true is it that because God's law tells us that we are to love our brothers and sisters, someone tell me how difficult it is to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's difficult, isn't it? That's why Christ summarized the entire law in two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as who? Yourself. Yourself. When you and I choose to slander someone, church, we're saying that we're smarter than the law of God. We know better than the law of God when we've chosen to slander. We say that God's law doesn't apply to us when we choose to slander. So how does that fit into the overall logic of the text? Well, ultimately, we begin to see a prideful outlook here. Look at, look at verse number 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you? You know, when, when you and I use unbiblical standards to judge another individual and slander them, we're acting as if we're qualified to be the lawgiver and the judge. And James asks us a very pointed question here. And so if you have a physical Bible, I want you to underline the phrase, who are you? Who are you, James is asking, who are you to be the lawgiver and the judge? Who do you think you are to sit in sinful condemnation and judge another? If we want to grow in humility, church, we must put off sinful, pharisaical behavior. We cannot appoint righteousness to ourselves and say that we're good. And so James says, not only do I want you to avoid being a Pharisee, but I also want you to avoid being presumptive. Avoid being presumptive. It's going to hit the screens for you. Avoid being presumptive. Not, now, at first glance here in Scripture, we might think that James begins to change the subject, but he didn't. Not at all. Look back with me at verse number 16. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. He's still talking about the very themes of the way that the, the pridefulness in us manifests. And so let's back up and carefully walk through Scripture here. Look at verse 13. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, I want us to just stop for a moment. Isn't it fascinating that James would flag this tendency among people who were in the process of being scattered away from where they originally were? All they're doing here in Scripture is crafting a five-year strategic ministry plan. Church, can we all agree this morning that that could not be possibly anything wrong to, to craft strategic ministry plans? Is that wrong? Someone give me an amen. Someone say, it's not wrong for us to plan. I'm the planner in here and my heart is starting to race it is not wrong for them to be creating a strategic ministry plan on how they will reach the next group of people. But why is James saying that it's wrong? Why? Look again at verse 14. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? 
For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. There's so much presumption here that says, I know I'll have another day for my plans to come to fruition. And there's no one in this planning chain who has the authority to alter them. That's what they were saying. And so he says, what should we do? Look at verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So I want us to stop here. Because here we may have a tendency to just throw out the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, if the Lord wills. The problem isn't with their words as much as is what the words in this case reveal about their heart. You know, the antidote here is not appending the words if the Lord wills to every single statement in our lives. Imagine mom, dad, your child comes to you and says, is it time to brush my teeth? And then you as a parent replied, if the Lord wills. Now we may think that's funny. Most moms, most dads would probably say, it's the Lord's will that I faint because my child just asked me to brush their teeth. And that's often what we do in Christian circles, right? Someone will say, hey, are you going to be at church on Sunday? Hey, are you going to go to the Bible study? Hey, are you going to go to the men's event? Hey, are you going to go to the women's event? If the Lord wills. If the, if the Lord wills. And we've just totally negated the entire thought process that the Lord is sovereign over all things. The Lord is sovereign over all things. We must sit here and see that there's a revealing tendency in man. Look at verse number 16. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Just like slander being a wrongful evaluation of self, so is presumption. It's a wrong evaluation of self. A wrong evaluation. And please think about what James would have made this point to people who are being scattered. Here's a, a key question that every single one of us in here must ask ourselves this morning. Does God have the right and the authority to call an audible in your life? Can God sovereignly change the plans even if it results in additional pain or pressure or mistreatment for the believer? maybe even scattering his Christians further if that's what's best to accomplish his mission. Church, I want you to hear me for just a moment. The degree to which we answer that question, yes, points the needle towards humility. The degree to which we answer that question, no, points the needle towards pridefulness. If we say, God, yes, God can call an audible in my life, it points me towards humility. If I say, no, God can't, it, port, it points me right, right towards pridefulness. And it's really not just a matter of answering yes or no this morning. But it's the nature of our response when God actually changes the plan. How many times in your life have you said, oh, that I would never do that, or I will always do that, and then in the midst of something happened, you did the opposite of what you said you would never do, or what you said you would do. You know, perhaps more correctly stated this morning for us is that when, when God does change the plan, 
or reveals more of his plan and it takes us in a different direction, maybe that we would not prefer when we can simply say glory to God. God, I still praise you. I'm going to praise you in the storm. When I hoped that you would have already come. <laughs> when I hoped that you would have already rescued me. When I hoped that you, you would have brought light into the situation. I'm going to continue to praise you. No matter the outcome. No matter how long it takes. No matter when I can't. I'm going to continue to praise. Why? Because he is the same God on the mountaintop as he is in the valley. You know, many, many ways followers of Christ are living in a scattered condition right now. You know, this world, church, is not our home. Amen? And I don't want to overstate that point to you as a church body. I'm learning more and more and more over the last year of my life that we have so much in which to be thankful for. So much in which to be thankful for. And I'm also learning about the incredible amount of religious liberty that we have in this country. And those are two things, church, that we should never take for granted. Never. However, as a pastor, I would love to live in a culture where people could have varying positions on cultural issues and could still peacefully coexist. I want more than anything in the world for that to happen. Even have times where we could disagree with civility and respect for one another. And, and as a church, I need us to understand that we must face the fact that we don't live in that type of culture. We don't live in that type of time. There are people in our world and in our community who would like nothing more than to shame and silence anybody who believes the entirety of Scripture and that their source of spiritual and moral truth is the Bible. And I think those are fair words to use here in our culture context. The goal of many is to shame and silence those who affirm biblical truths for themselves or those who wish to follow those biblical truths. Church, I need you to agree with me this morning that this is part of God's will for us at this particular time and this particular place. Right now, and for what it's worth, I was having a conversation with my wife this week, and in all of the the drudgery at times of ministry and all of the loneliness that ministry brings and, and all of the the not having a nine to five hours as a pastor, I find nothing more exhilarating. I find nothing more thrilling in my life than seeking to find joy and living for Christ and making a difference for him in this particular culture context. And I don't know about you, but for me and my life and for our family's lives, we find it thrilling and we have to face the question this morning, church, what do you do when there are people trying to shame and silence you for speaking the word of God? What do we do? Please don't tell me this morning as Christians, our response is to sit silently and be ashamed of what we've been given as truth. Don't tell me that's the response because that cannot be what biblical humility looks like in our culture context. It can't. We have to be able to find our voice because this is what God's will is for the setting of our church. 
We've been called to live and to speak the gospel, and we've been called to do that for two very important reasons, church. Two very important reasons. The first is because religious liberty is worth protecting and promoting. Amen, church. Religious liberty is worth protecting and promoting. Do you know right now countless Christian businesses, Hobby Lobby, Chick-fil-A, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Focus on the Family, and many other, hundreds of other Christian organizations, including the church right now, are being shamed, and our government and the people around us are trying to silence us for reasons that speak that those entities are anti-LGBTQ. That's exactly what they say. And that's not true, church. It's not true. Don't let people shame you and silence you because you're pro-biblical truth. Don't let people shame you and silence you because you're pro-God and his word. Don't let people shame you and silence you because you are pro-religious freedom. Don't. They They have every right and we have every right just as much as the next person to affirm our beliefs and advocate for them. And you and I must must know, church, we cannot expect as Christians to plan to lead some non-confrontational, peaceful, filled life here in our culture. It's not going to happen. We will never live a controversy-free life as a Christian. We won't. And that's what God wills for us. We think that we have it bad here because someone disagrees with the Bible. People in the Bible were beheaded and their bodies were used to light the pathways of castle doors of the emperors. We think we have it bad. People were strapped to horses and pulled in different directions until their their arms and legs were ripped from their bodies. We have it bad because someone someone doesn't like that we read the Bible. Church, we have to we have to decide am I going to have a voice? Am I going to stand for truth? So that one day our kids and grandkids can live and minister in a climate where there's some modicum of religious freedom still available. Am I? Because church, if we don't humbly but definitely stand up for what we believe, then we can't complain when someone takes it away from us. I was telling the prayer team this morning... If we don't stand for something, we will fall for everything. What we might call biblical humility this morning may in fact be apathy and sinful fear. And the second thing, the second reason why is really more to the point, and that's because we have been called to proclaim the gospel. And that's at stake here in our culture. The call to proclaim the gospel. Nobody has ever come to Christ because somebody was simply nice to them all the time. That doesn't happen. We believe in being kind here at the well. We believe in being loving here at the well. We believe 
and creating an atmosphere where people who will never agree can have the freedom to speak and advocate for their positions as well as listen. But at some point, those who are willing to listen to the truth, they must be subject to the holiness of God and it must come up in conversation. It must come up about the sinfulness of man. It must come up about the sufficiency of Scripture. It must come up about the authority of Christ and the need for repentance and faith because no person will ever genuinely come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ without those concepts, church. We have to begin to speak those things out and that will generate spark here in our culture. And the more the more that we plan and, and desire to not generate sparks, we must remember that may not be the Lord's plan. That may not be the Lord's plan. More so today than any other lifetime, I, I believe. Church, we are kidding ourselves this morning if we don't think we're in a battle. We're kidding ourselves we have to decide, does God have the right place in our lives to challenge us when he deems best? And then when he calls upon us to stand against those who try to shame and silence truth. And by the way, we as a church will not stand for shaming and silencing someone else. We won't do it. The core question for us this morning is should people in all sectors of our democracy enjoy freedom of expression including religious freedom is that is that the case because here's the deal church nowhere in the bible does it say that everything's going to turn around and everything's going to be all grand for us for the rest of our lives in fact quite the opposite our bible is very clear that things are only going to progressively get worse until the time comes for jesus's return and so are we ready are we ready to stand i'm not sitting up here telling you that we're going to be a, a political voice. No, because I don't believe that, that that's what we are called to do. I am up here telling you that James was telling Christians over 2,000 years ago, make sure you speak the truth and use your voice to do it. Don't be silenced. Don't be shamed because you speak the truth. And church, growing in humility requires of us to not only accept God's will for our ministry conditions today, it requires us to not be pharisaical and presumptive, but it also requires us to avoid being passive. Avoid being passive. I want you to look back with me at verse number 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Meaning, the one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. Now church, I'm going to take us on a wee bit of a theological journey for just a moment to help us break down something that's taught in Scripture. There are many ways, specific ways, that we sin in this life. But those ways of sinning fall into two categories in the Christian circle. They are the sins of commission and the sins of omission. Now before you go like, what is he talking about? Let me break it down for you. All sins will fall into one of those two categories, commission or omission. First, the sin of commission is a category of sin that describes the things that we did and we should not have done them. Those are the sins of commission. I have committed a sin when I lied and I should not have. Those are sins of commission. 
The second is the sin of omission. And it is a category that encompasses sins of not doing what we know was right to do. Those are sins of omission. Now, we don't think much about the sins of omission, even though they're just as pernicious and destructive as anything else that we could commit. Just as destructive. I should have testified because I knew he was innocent, but I didn't out of fear. I didn't do what was right. Sin is not just something we do, church, but it is something that we ought to have done as well. Often we do what God forbids, and we're very conscious of those things because they are visible to us. One commentator, I believe it was Matthew Henry, described this type of sin as knowledge without practice. Knowledge without practice. You know, Paul Paul was guilty of it in Romans 7 when he said, The good that I want to do, I do not do. The sin of omission. We often think of sins as the things we should not have done. However, being a Christian is characterized as doing what we are called to do, church. What we are called to do, church. A person cannot say, I decided I would not sin today, and so I didn't. A Christian cannot wake up one day and say, I decided not to sin, and so I didn't. And if that person ever says that, well, how did you do that? Because I really want to know. Like, how did you do that? I could imagine the conversation. Well, I just, I just sat down so that I would not step into sin and, and thought about nothing so I would not think evil. I see But don't you think you committed a sin of being the useless fig tree? Well, I didn't think of that. The the command by Jesus to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me encompasses the things that we ought not to do, but it also includes the things that we ought to do. And so the, the Christian quits drinking quits cursing and he begins to praise God and and speaks truth to other people. To not do the latter thing is still sin. You know, I I was thinking about this as I was going back. I'm like, what is another example in scripture that I could give that would easily portray this? And I thought back to Zechariah, the book of Zechariah. God commanded Joshua and Zerubbabel, the high priest and the governor of the remnant. He says, walk in my ways and perform my services. And if they would, God said that you will govern my house and also have charge of my courts. And I will grant you free access among any of those who are standing here right now. In that day, in the book of Zechariah, the house of the Lord needed to be built and the services needed to be conducted. And the idea that someone can be pleasing to God by turning from evil while remaining idle so as to not advance the work is the sin of omission. Truthfully, church, we understand that we must turn away from Satan's vices, but Satan is just as happily if we sit by idly and allow others to live in sinfulness or to shame Christianity or to silence the truth. Satan loves nothing more than the idle Christian. In fact, Solomon said that the idle hands produce destruction in the heart of man. Church... We must consider the personal application this morning of Christ's words, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
Jesus went on to say that it was more blessed to give than to receive. But finally, he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. By doing God's will, church, we avoid the sin of omission. I want you to write something down this morning. It's going to hit the screen for you. The omission of a known duty, as well as the commission of a known sin, is a criminal act in the eyes of God. The omission of a known duty, as well as the commission of a known sin, is a criminal act in the eyes of God. If we want to grow and be rooted in biblical humility, we have to avoid being pharisaical, presumptive, and passive. But when we choose to do that, you know, it's amazing the number of opportunities that we have to proclaim Christ. Amazing. I want to give us an example as we close this morning. How many of you remember a couple of years back, a Dallas police officer by the name of Amber Geiger? Do you guys remember that she was a white Dallas police officer who was sentenced to 10 years in prison for killing an African-American man in his own apartment? Do you guys, you guys vaguely remember? I'm not asking for you to remember all the details. So just a couple of years ago, there are all sorts of things that I could stand here as your pastor and, and could be said about this specific incident. But what I want to focus on this morning as we close is the statement and the actions of the victim's brother, Brant Jean. Brant showed up to the court on the day in which Amber was sentenced. And he said to the court that Amber, he knew, was truly sorry and that he, as the only living brother, forgave Amber for what she had done. He then goes on to ask the judge, can I please go and give Amber a hug? Can I go give her a hug? Just a few weeks prior to this, she had murdered his brother in his own apartment. He said, I want to give her a hug. The judge allowed for it to occur, and after the fact, he was asked why, and he said, my main desire is not that she goes to jail, but that she would give her life to Christ. That she would give her life to Christ. And as I was re-watching the clips of that, that day in court, I thought to myself, that's the essence of humility. That's the essence of humility. Not, I know the future and what it holds, and that's the setting that I'm willing to serve you, God. But I'll let you, God, choose the setting for me, and I'm going to serve you no matter what comes my way. He lost his brother in cold blood, and he was more concerned by the killer's soul than he was her spending any time in prison. The point this morning for us, church, for all of us, and really I've been speaking this more to myself all week before it even got to you. We don't get to decide the ministry setting in which God's going to use us. We don't get to decide, but if we walk humbly before the Lord, then he will, give, he will give us all sorts and shapes and sizes of settings to be used. Some positive and some loving, but some controversial and very stretching. Amen, church?
And so as we close, scattered people who remain humble, church, can accomplish great work for the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in this place and we, we thank you for these truths here. This challenge, really, God, to not be like the religious leaders of, of your day, of, uh, of Paul's day, of, of James's day. But Lord, that we would be a people of humility, that we would walk humbly. But yet at the same time, we would be a people of justice and mercy, as your word tells us in the book of Micah, that you require of us as believers. And so, Lord, I pray that you would challenge us, that you would realign our heart for truth. And God, as, as scary as it may seem for some, God, I ask you to break our hearts for what breaks yours. Give us your eyes for just a moment so that we can see people the way that you do and that through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, Lord, that we could bring truth to people in a loving and, and humble way. That people would want to know more about you because, God, you are the great physician. You are the great restorer. You are the God who protects. You're the God who sees everything. You are the unchanging and unfailing God. And I know from, from your truth, God, it is not your heart that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance and so, Lord, help us to be a forgiving people. Help us to be a merciful and grace-giving people here at the well. Help us to be an example for the people around us. But, Lord, give us boldness and liberty to speak when your truth is being shamed and silenced, especially here in our community. And so, Lord, use us as your vessels in this place to minister uh, healing, to bring hope to ho the hopeless here in Ionia, and I ask and pray these things now in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.